Thank you for listening to Prophetic Politics. This is Thabiti Anyabwile. I want to make you aware of something special that's happening and invite you to come. March 5 through 7, 2020, Just Gospel 2020, we'll be having a national conference in Alexandria, Virginia. That's March 5 to 7, 2020, in Alexandria, Virginia, at Delray Baptist Church. Our theme this year is Pilgrim Politics. So if you've been interested to listen to prophetic politics and you've been encouraged by what you've heard in turn, in, in tone, in substance, come to Just Gospel 2020. We're going to be thinking about what it means to be Christians, particularly what it means to be pilgrims who are passing through this world, who have a prophetic political concern for the things that are happening to our neighbors, the things that are happening to our country, uh, and who are trying to think how to bear faithful witness um, in, in, our, in our local situations, in our national situations, and so on. So if you want more of this, more of this conversation, if you feel like this is an area of discipleship where you want to grow, need to grow, uh, as I do, March 5 to 7, 2020, Just Gospel 2020, Pilgrim Politics, Healing Conversations About Christians and Politics in Alexandria, Virginia. Come to our website, justgospelconference.org, justgospelconference.org, and find more information. We'd love to have you there. Hey, we might even tape an episode of Prophetic Politics, and you can join us. God bless you. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabwile. And I'm Ben Brophy. Today, we are going to talk about our criminal justice system. Uh, and uh, so it's interesting. Uh, one thing I was thinking about as I was prepping this is that, you know, the Bible has lots to say about crime and punishment. We're going to get into that. Um, and at the same time, I think in, in modern America, you can't really talk about the issue without talking about issues of race and equity and class. They're almost inseparable. You, you could, I'm sure you could say that in lots of countries. I think you can particularly say it in this country. So, Nick, what does criminal justice look like today in the U.S.? So I will start with the basics. Um, so we've, we said a few, you know, gosh, last season we were noting that the state is the only entity with a monopoly on the use of force and violence. Well, in the same, by the same token, the state is also the only entity that's able to deprive us of our liberty if, if you're in a sort of a well-functioning society. Uh, and this happens in the form of incarceration or imprisonment. Um, and so throughout American history, this power has been open to misuse. Um, you know, and, and misuse would mean, you know, imprisoning the wrong people, imprisoning people who are innocent, maybe imprisoning people because of a group they identified with. Um, and then, of course, the other aspect of it would be once they're there, um, when you're part of, you know, what some call the carceral state, um, not treating them well, like the conditions while being incarcerated not being uh, good. And by the way, the balance there, of course, is it's not supposed to be a great experience, but... Um, there are certain sort of standards that have to be respected even when a person's in prison. And so that, that's often what, what the debate becomes. Um, interestingly, um, if you, you just to get, take a brief view of the history, um, most of the bad consequences we know about um, in sort of our history of incarceration can stem from uh, good intentions or misguided intentions. So a couple of examples. Um, in the progressive era, the idea of solitary confinement at first was hailed as this innovation in helping to sort of in, in, in basically help mold 
you know, somebody's character better, like have almost monk-like, like have them be by themselves and not speak and just do work. Turns out that is incredibly psychologically damaging to, to do that to a person, but they didn't know it at the time. Um, uh, sometimes, often it takes on a sort of a racial valence. So um, our history with Native Americans in this country, um, if you, you know, there's a whole history here actually and in Canada of removing Native, Amer Native American youth from their homes and forcing them into boarding, boarding schools to quote unquote civilize them. Mm -hmm. That's a form of incarceration too, right? And it's family separation. Um, even the creation of our juvenile justice system, the idea of a separate system for juveniles, there's a there's a seed of good intention there, right? That sort of says, well, let's let's these are younger people, we need to treat them differently. But of course the result, uh, sort of juvenile justice today, um, you know, doesn't have a very good reputation. Uh, often it means that you're disproportionately targeting youth of color. There's a lot of things that go wrong. So the key questions you have to ask in looking at this is you almost think of sort of the idea of criminal justice as a pipeline. And there are sort of several institutions that come into play. So it starts with, how do you even end up in the system? You get arrested. There are police that do that. So what are the police doing? And how do they make arrests? Secondly, um, you go to court because you're accused of a crime. And the question is, are you guilty? And if you're guilty, you go, you go to prison. So the question is, courts play a big role there. What do they do? Um, what sort of help is provided to you if you're in a trial? Um, think about public defenders, what public prosecutors do. If you're found guilty, what does sentencing look like? The punishment that's given to you, that's judges and the laws that bind judges. Um, and then if all that happens and you are imprisoned, what are the conditions like in prison? That's what I was talking about earlier. How does that affect people? And this is something that we'll get at when we talk about the sort of biblical basis. What is the purpose of imprisonment, of time spent in prison? Um, we talk about punishment. We talk about rehabilitation. We talk about deterrence. We'll talk about all those things in, as, as we sort of get into this. And then, of course, finally, when a person is done, when they've, you know, as, as the saying goes, paid their debt to society, when they're done serving their prison term or their sentence, what happens? How do they reenter? How are they supported to reenter? What obligation do we have to support um, you know, a criminal to reenter society? Those are sort of the big questions, right? And even as you hear me tick down that list, right, you can see that at each of those stages, there is the potential for abuse. Uh, the opportunity actually to be, to be God imaging in the justice you do at each of those stages, but also the opportunity for abuse. And right now, just to sort of run through the statistics that, that many of us will know, the record is not good. So in America today, we incarcerate more people than anyone else in the world. And not just that, we incarcerate more people per capita, so as a fraction of our population, than anybody else in the world. Um, prison, parole, and probation operations cost about $81 billion a year to American taxpayers. And police and court costs and bail bond fees and prison phone fees cost another $100 billion to the prisoners themselves or the people that are going through the system, as it were. And that's to say nothing of the racial disparity. So that's just aggregate figures. But just to, t just to put the other kind of set of things in, in kind of perspective, right? Um, white people, white non-Hispanic whites are 64% of the US population. This is as of 2010, so it's an older statistic, but it hasn't changed much. 64% of the population, 39% of the prison population. Um, Hispanic, Latino folks, 16% of the U.S. population, 19% of the um, incarcerated population. And finally, uh, black folks, 
13% of the U.S. population, 40% of the incarcerated population. So, yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, that statistic is nuts. So I guess the question I would have is, like, do we really think that black people are committing crime at that much of a higher percentage? Like, the, the answer has to be no. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I think so. So the thing you're getting at there, Ben, is it, you, know, there, you can talk about disparities in whether crimes are, whether people are arrested for crimes, yeah. whether they are then charged, whether they are then, and then wh- how they are treated in court, what sort of deal they are offered, and then how they are sentenced. Right. All of those could lead to those sorts of disparities. So what I'm getting at is like, is there any explanation for this massive disparity in percentage of prison population other than racial discrimination or oppression of minorities from the criminal justice system? I don't think there is. I don't think there is either. That's all. I mean, the the stats are just stunning, right? So I just wanted to spend like a second on that. Yeah. It's a good point. It's good to put it in historical context. So that that 40% um, African Americans making up 40% of the incarcerated population, that's down from almost 100%. (laughs) <laughs> so down if we count if we count slavery as incarceration, right. yeah. uh, the percentage of Black mm. Americans who actually have freedom right. Uh, right. has gone up. So this little tongue in cheek. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so we're headed in the right direction. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> not mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So last note here is uh, you can go through a whole long history. I'm just going to give us recent history here on this issue. Um, I think the, the thing that defines most of our lifespans and lifetimes is that in the late 20th century, you see a rise in crime. Like the statistics are kind of un, un, uh, unavoidable here. You know, more crime, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, you know, for people like uh, me and Ben growing up, the cities were sort of places you avoided because you're like, oh, there's a lot of crime there. That's what we were told. Um, and so there's a tough on crime era. It's popular if you're a politician then to be tough on crime, to pass laws that make it hard, make, basically for each of those stages of the pipeline I just told you about, to make to put your thumb on the scale more towards this person goes to prison. So just to give one example, think about like a three strikes law, right? So three strikes and you're out. In other words, three crimes, however big, however small, you go away for a long time or for life, right? And that obviously means more people end up in jail than would otherwise end up in jail. And um, th- that's just one example. Um, mandatory minimum sentencing, right, for certain offenses that removes a judge's discretion, says you must, if they're found in possession of, say, this much of a certain kind of drug, must uh, sentence them to at least this much time uh, in prison. Yeah. All, actually, one stat here is a lot of the source of our high rate of incarceration comes down to the length of sentences. Hmm. Not the sort of number of people churning through the system, but the length of the sentences they're given. So you look at three strikes, mandatory minutes. Well, they're both examples of things that lengthen the average prison sentence. Um, so anyway, we're in this era. The sort of defining federal law at that time is a bill actually passed by a Democratic president, Democratic Congress, uh, the so-called 1994 Crime Bill. Um, and like many crime bills, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Right. It contains an assault weapons ban. Right. It, for sort of if you think about a gun control measure, it also, you know, the, the famous line then was 100,000 new cops on the beat. It funded 100,000 new police, um, billions of dollars uh, for funding for prisons, for federal prison programs, um, controversially eliminated higher education grants for people who were serving in prison at the time. So you can see the different 
dimensions of the issue that when you pass a law on crime that you're dealing with is what happens to people while they're in prison? What happens in terms of how much we're supporting and or funding police and or prisons themselves and things like that? Um, and then in the late 90s and the early 2000s, crime drops. It drops a lot. You look at the statistics, every type of crime. By the time you get to the mid-2000s, crime is at this sort of new low. Um, and no one can really explain why. I mean, different people have their theories, right? Um, and um, some would tell you, oh, it's because of the tough on crime stuff we did. But, and others would give you lots of other explanations. I won't go into all of that except to say that um, it's a hotly debated thing. Um, and so yeah. one, one question or one thought, like even if, mm. let's say locking people up for 40 years at a pop yeah. is the, the reason these crime statistics have dropped so far, is that a trade-off we should even be making if we're if we're catching people in for nonviolent crimes, locking yeah. them up for a long period of time? I think even that is a valid question. I don't. I I agree with you. I don't think that that legislation. You're saying even if it worked, even if it we were, is that yeah. a trade-off that it's is worth question. making? Right. Anyway. Right. Definitely. Definitely a fair question. Anyway, so we don't know. There's less crime these days, and um, there's been room since then for sort of a criminal justice reform movement to take shape. Most recent incarnation of that um, was the First Step Act uh, that was passed by, you know, under the president we're under right now, Donald Trump, and um, by a, um, gosh, no, by a Republican Congress in its lame duck session in 2018. And uh, so it, it does some things that sort of move things in the other direction, right? So it, it um, retroactively applies the Fair Sentencing Act, allows for employees to store their firearms securely at federal prisons. It restricts certain practices, like the use of restraints on pregnant women. You think there are all sorts of things that can happen in prison, right? That like law determines whether those things can happen. Um, expands compassionate release for terminally ill patients. Places prisoners closer to family in terms of where they're incarcerated. So all these things that, a lot of this bill was about what happens when you're in prison. And so a lot of the provisions are about that. Um, but it's also about what happens when you're getting out of prison. Um, some discretion for federal judges in sentencing nonviolent drug offenders, um, eliminate some of those disparities in sentencing guidelines, things like that. So it was, a, it was hailed as a really, really important um, bill, and rightly so. And of course, people would still say there's a long way to go. We're still, it, most would tell you that's not going to, by itself, bring those numbers down in terms of the number of people we incarcerate, but it is a step in the right direction. Is it worth briefly talking about mm. mandatory minimums, like the, the crack cocaine versus cocaine difference yeah yeah um it's so the i'm was very pleased to see that be part of this law mm. this is like the classic example even even in libertarian circles where you know the sentence for crack cocaine which is primarily used by inner city minorities um was just infinitely higher than powder cocaine which is what white people in the suburbs would use yep. and so you just use the law itself had disparate sentences for one group of users versus the other um which to harken back to a previous episode we have f feels quite a bit like the sin of partiality in how mm. you're going to apply that stuff functionally other than the length of the high as i understand it there's no difference between crack cocaine and cocaine so right the law itself was just aimed at a particular segment of the population and that's why i was pleased to see it go i think it's also a good example of how some of these laws just are aimed at minority communities in particular. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, average voter says, let's be tough on crime. I'm glad that we're punishing these drug users without knowing the nuance of mm -hmm. who is disproportionately bearing the burden of that law. 
anyway yeah no, I, I think that's spot on and it's interesting how um sort of tough on crime rhetoric uh you're talking about the 80s is laced together with super predator rhetoric and things mm. of that sort and how um the crime bill being being bipartisan uh, and and sort of led in '94 by President Clinton, um, it's a, it's a kind of issue that sometimes both sides of the aisle oh, have sure. explored it. I mean, so if you view the the documentary Thirteenth, uh, it's interesting that when you come down to the section of the documentary on the crime bill, you get Charles Rangel right alongside um, mm-hmm. some you know conservative you know Republican types. Yeah, sure. um, so you know you got African American Democrat Democrats who yeah. are seen as progressive exploiting the same sort of uh, tropes and images and um, rhetoric around let's approach crime um, in this punitive, um, retributive way um, that creates some of the, the injustices that, we, that we've been talking about here. Well, and just to say one thing, right? When crime is high or when crime is perceived as a problem, um, the risk-averse thing to do as a politician is to just be tougher. Um, you, it, it sort of, I, I, I think that, um, it's the, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the safe thing to do because, and so there's that, an, ex- as a political expedient. Yes. Yes. If you're, if you're, a, if you're an elected official making mm-hmm. these sorts of laws, right? Like mercy is, mercy is risky, mm-hmm. right? Like, because people do reoffend. Like, so the, the, the sort of archetypal example of this, right, was in the 1988 presidential election. Uh, so incumbent president George H. W. Bush is running against. I'm sorry. Yes, 88. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not no Duke, one's an incumbent. It's Dukakis. H. W. is yeah. running against Michael Dukakis, who's the governor of Massachusetts. And there was a well publicized case where um, an African American inmate named Willie Horton uh, was let out on a weekend release program. It was a program of rehabilitation or reentry, whatever you want to call it, that was happening in Massachusetts at the time. Um, he was out for the weekend. And he committed another crime. It was a it was a violent. I mean. It was a violent crime that he committed. And um, so there was the famous so-called Willie Horton ad in which they said in Michael Dukakis' state, you know, they'll allow, you know, the sort of weekend release of these violent criminals. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you that lost him the election, but it wasn't good. Um, and might, in, it, it were, might have been the tank. Might have helped, right? And, and in that environment, right, so mercy costs. Deciding to have yeah. a law like this means stuff like that will happen sometimes. It's not like a guarantee, Right. And so I, I will just say, we're, I mean, you know, we're lucky the politics are a little different now, but we're always one crime wave away from going back to that, I think. So no, I think that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, Thabiti, let's let's uh, get away from the sort of nuts and bolts of the policy for a moment and turn to what the Bible has to say. I was anticipating, I think, plenty to say about crime and punishment. So what 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 should how should we use the Bible to think about criminal justice? It's a good question, and um, we should use the Bible well. Like <laughs> uh, all those is, other subjects. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and and it, it, in fact, in one sense, um, kind of law and criminal justice is central to um, the sort of biblical worldview and outlook. Um, from Genesis 9, verse 6, uh, after the flood, uh, verse 5, God says to, to Noah, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Um, and many folks see in that sort of in seed form um, the sort of justification for government and a justification particularly of what we're calling criminal justice in government. So someone takes a life, government, his fellow man, takes a life in return. 
that, of course, gets kind of expounded. That basic idea gets expounded in Romans 13, where, where Paul talks about government bearing the sword uh, against wrongdoers. That's essentially criminal justice language. That's essentially criminal justice framing. Um, of course, the, the sort of central aspect of God's old covenant with his people Israel, uh, central to that covenant, is itself the law. Um, which includes in it not only sort of um, prescription for moral behavior, but also often consequence, um, sort of criminal justice, if you will. So if someone uh, kills a neighbor, then you, you re- justice looks like this. If someone um, steals a neighbor's possessions, justice looks like this. Um, so in some sense, the sort of constitution of Israel, the old covenant, uh, the Mosaic law, um, is is a criminal justice system. Um, and so this seems to be at the heart of how God has um, defined human society. It's been at the heart of how God related to his old covenant people um, who themselves were meant to be a light to the Gentiles, right? Who were meant to be um, exemplary uh, to the surrounding nations as they lived out covenant with God. None of that is overturned in the New Testament. Right. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's Um, respect, give respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due, Um, submit to governing authorities. That would be inclusive of the elements of a criminal justice system like the one we have in the United States. Policing, courts, prisons, uh, probation and parole, um, all those sort of constitutive elements uh, of our criminal justice system are meant to be honored, uh, meant to be submitted to insofar as they don't try and arrogate to themselves things that belong to God, um, our worship, our highest allegiance, uh, things of that sort, uh, or call us into injustice and sin. Uh, we're not meant to comply with those things. Um, so I think the Bible has a, a sort of healthy outlook on um, criminal justice as, as one aspect of the, the bigger topic of justice. Here's the thing I think the Bible does a better job of than our current system. So just to go back to that tough on crime language for a moment, that's an entirely punitive approach to criminal justice. Um, And it's gotten us to kind of inequities that we've been talking about for a moment here. Well, the Bible would, would, yes, have a category for punitive uh, measures in justice, but it also would have a category for restorative measures in justice. Um, so if we're thinking about this from the, the vantage point of um, laws in, say, Exodus 20 to 23, for example, uh, there's not only punishment for wrongdoing, but there's also making whole the one who was wronged, right? Uh, returning fourfold things that you've stolen, for example. We come forward into the New Testament and we're thinking about these, these things in a gospel sense. Then we, then we really do need categories for... Um, Repentance, reconciliation, um, moral reform, uh, things of that sort. So we would we would want ideally our systems of criminal justice to be aiming at those things as well. Um, interesting. I mean, at the, the sort of root word for um, penitentiaries, you know, penitent, right, is is a hearkening back to an era where those systems were were hoped. Uh, would create repentance and and turning and uh, moral reform and rehabilitation. I think 
collectively as a society, we've almost given up on those ideals, on those aims. And, and what we're left with is the carceral state that you uh, mentioned. What we're left with um, is privatization of these things and the monetization of these things in ways that uh, actually undermine justice and undermine a system that would be promotive of more than just punishment. Yeah, we didn't talk about for-profit prisons much. No, we did not. Mm. Well, it's a, it's sort of an, if you, if you, I mean, just to kind of give the broad explainer on it, um, federal policy or any any policy around criminal justice and how big the or small the prison population is will have implications for dollars that are spent on the building and the staffing of these prisons, and <clears throat> many uh, many prisons might be owned and operated by the government. But there are also many which, if not owned, are at least operated by private prison companies. They supply the guards, sort of supply the administration, other things like that. So there is, it, when people speak of a kind of prison industrial complex, uh, at the very least you can say there is an industry mm-hmm. of folks who benefit from prisons, mm-hmm. the, the existence of prisons, their size. And so if you think about those numbers, more people in prison versus few people in prison, that's the bottom line of a sector of society which creates a political interest group, which influences the conversation at both the state and the federal levels. Yeah, absolutely. And so that that profit motive then um, fuels some really um, nasty things Hmm. in terms of what we're doing with our prisons, the the longer sentences, Mm -hmm. uh, the tough on crime approach that we've been talking about. Um, Yeah, you've got to, if you're going to build those beds, you got to put people in them. That's right. Um, and so I think it's actually it just like hospitals, that's like exactly in a perverse right. way, right? That's exactly like you right. get reimbursed, et cetera, same it's thing. A perverse incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it goes back to the heart of something you were saying, Nick, when you started us out, where you said, really, it's only the state who has legitimate authority to take away freedoms. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that one could argue, well, that happened in the courts, and now the prisons is kind of an aftercare system, aftercare mm-hmm. part of that system or that, that, that process. But I think there's a, there's a case to be made that sort of gov- legitimate government authority is eroded by, is corrupted by mm-hmm. the privatization of, of prisons in that way. Um, so if you are contracting as government mm-hmm. with a private provider who has a profit motive to yeah. fill those beds and fill those prisons, then I think there's immense temptation and pressure yeah. to corrupt that government authority in a way that helps profit but doesn't actually serve and protect the citizenry the way it should it's a good really 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 good point it's a really good point so uh we're not saying that government shouldn't outsource anything but Mm. it may be that they shouldn't outsource this well i I would argue i I would argue argue that very adamantly. yeah 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 um so let let me go back to what you you've touched on the beginning we've talked about this already if we think about it if i think about the possible purposes right of of imprisonment um they would be uh punishment um, as you say, restorative justice and rehabilitation, mm-hmm. and then deterrence, which is to say either fewer crimes are committed because those people are in prison or fewer, and or fewer crimes are committed because people see the threat of the punishment and therefore do not commit those crimes. Am I missing anything in terms of sort of reason, possible reasons to put people in prison? Well, that all of those are sort of outcomes. I think most of those are outcomes mm-hmm. relative to the person imprisoned. Most mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. 
Uh, I think there are probably a set of outcomes that have to do with persons who are not imprisoned, um, mm-hmm. sort of meaning the broader society, right? So you've got safety, public safety, mm-hmm. uh, as as a goal there. Sure. Um, you've got the promotion of law-abiding moral behavior, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. So there's probably a, a constellation of, of things that are about mm-hmm. what kind of society do we want or want to protect, as well as what are we doing with people that we incarcerate uh, and goals around those persons as well. Yep, yep. Ben, anything you'd add to that? Nothing to that. Um, I was going to take us a little afield of that. Yeah. So trying to put on my antagonist hat a little bit so i guess how would we because i think this is one when, of the, when did you take that hat off <laughs> the people in the podcast don't know that about me to be we're gonna pretend that i'm really nice and not contrarian um so i guess how would this is one of the issues where i think we almost completely agree uh which with you know so i'm not gonna fight for the sake of fighting but i guess one of the things I've heard, or I think you hear in the discourse is, okay, the government has a legitimate right to restrain bad conduct, whether it be self-harm or harm of others. And so they're passing those laws. Uh, the responsibility on people is, you know, through personal responsibility, not to break those laws, right? And so if they break the law, even if the sentence is draconian, isn't that their own fault? You know, why doesn't the government have a legitimate right to do that, to sentence them to however long the government sees fit to do that? So what, why does that press on us or what, what pushback would you have for that? About the government's right to, yeah. Or like personal, basically the personal responsibility argument, right? Like, so, okay. We, we see disparities in the broad sense of, of racial impact or impacts on minorities through our criminal justice system. And there's a simplistic, pushback or argument that I've heard of like, well, if you don't want to go to jail, don't break the law. And so I'm trying to present that yeah. in the best, the best framing I can, which is the government has legitimate ability to pass laws and sentences. You should have thought of that before you committed a crime. Yeah. Due to crime. Right. Due to time. Exactly. Yeah. That kind of, that kind of thinking. Well, I think those things are true as far as they go. I mean, so I don't know that I would push back on, on those principles that there's just desserts, that there's consequence, that folks are moral actors who should, think before they they act and things of that sort so I don't want to push against those things but alongside those things are several other principles that are no less important uh, in fact are enshrined in in our laws for example um, we should not have cruel and unusual punishments mm-hmm. right just read a story the other day of a man who served 38 years in a life sentence for stealing nine dollars nine dollars um, that's cruel and unusual punishment. Now there are probably some other petty things or minor crimes that he's committed, but 38 years for $9 is cruel and unusual punishment. The other thing that I think is, is clear in our laws now, uh, we had to fight very hard for, are, are principles and laws around not discriminating. So there should be equal weights and measures. So to go back to the example of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. Mm. Um, so... Yes, perhaps that person should serve time, but they shouldn't serve it at 18 to 1 That's right. for someone who's done the same crime, yep. right? Um, and, and then I think the last thing I would say, yeah, we, we want to watch out for systemic 
injustices, um, systematic mistreatment of persons and groups. So, for example, what we know from research is that mar- marijuana use, for example, uh, among African Americans and whites uh, are essentially the same as a percentage of population. It's just dead on the same. But the rate of arrest, search, it's prosecution, yeah, are massively higher where African Americans are concerned compared to uh, white Americans. So those kinds of things go a long way in explaining um, the, the sort of crime rates um, and go a long way in explaining the disparity in sentencing and sentence length. Um, and those kinds of things are not fixed. They are not fixed by that sort of individual responsibility argument, yeah. right? Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly what it's driving at. And then two, and something else we haven't talked about is there is a vast difference between the rich and the poor mm. and how the criminal justice works for them. Mm-hmm. Right? Amen. Amen. The way that it's structured between lawyer fees and everything else, there just is a massive overwhelming advantage to having wealth, even moderate wealth. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have it, the criminal justice system does not work for you. Public defenders are incentivized to get those cases through as quickly as possible because there are so many of them. And if they all went to trial, nothing would move for years. So the system is incentivized to get this done as quickly as possible. And that's why you have things like stacking charges nine high for one offense. That's why you have people pleading more often than not, yeah, which gets yeah. them a record, which oh then goodness. you hit three strike laws. It becomes a mountain from which you can never get out from under. Oh my goodness! Uh, and so one resource, and I, you know, this, the third season of Serial, which I know she has, she has a, a viewpoint, um, but it is really, really good at showing that the criminal justice system on a local level is not some computer that adjudicates fairly. It's a bunch of human beings mm. who have incentives, yeah. and those incentives don't align necessarily with fairness and equity and justice. So That's right. You should, I commend that to anybody who wants to see the dark side of how a local courthouse works. Yeah. Man, I, I, you, you, you bring to mind something that Brian um, Stevenson says, mm. Equal Justice Institute. says basically in this country, um, you, you are better off in the, in the criminal justice system if you're guilty and rich than if you're poor and innocent. Mm. Right? Um, and, and that's because you can't afford adequate legal representation that's because legal representation is professionalized in this society. So you, it's mm. near impossible to represent yourself. Yeah. It's almost impossible to file the right paperwork yep. you know, in, in various proceedings. Um, and, and so we're just in a, a mess of a system that's stacked against regular people. Yeah. You know, black, white, whatever. If you, if you yeah. find yourself in trouble yep. in this country, uh, and you're not a person of means. Mm-hmm. Well, you you're really in trouble. Yeah, you're really true. in trouble. Yeah, and I, I mean, the Bible does have something to say about unequal treatment of rich that's and right. poor. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. So, um, and and I'll I'll go back to one other thing you said, Ben, in your in your argument, because like you know you could, you could you could push that to say like, well, of course we all agree that. Do, you know, do the crime, do the time. We're not arguing for like the purge here, right? We're like, you know, all laws go away for a little while. You can do whatever you want without consequence. Um, I'll say a more not a movie we commend. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I will say one more subtle version of that argument, and it was made by Nixon, and it was sort of revived by the current president. Is this invocation of law and order? Mm-hmm. Right, I'm mm-hmm. the law and order candidate, um, and I believe in law and order. Um, 
And it's sort of saying, it's sort of kind of, you know, I'm making you fear for safety, mm -hmm. right? There's criminals out there. I will protect you from them. Mm -hmm. And if, if that's kind of the extent of your analysis, you'll very quickly arrive at just more punitive, get them off the streets. I don't care how they're treated in, at any stage of this process. Right. Like, I think that if you're going to be if you're going to be singularly motivated by that idea, that idea of law and order, mm -hmm. I think that's where that leads. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the other problem. Well, I, j I just want to note. So um, remind me again, the first step act was signed by a Republican Congress and Senate. Mm -hmm. So, they're, you know, yeah, give no, them no. a little credit. Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, and, and, and I, I guess what I'm saying is in terms of in terms of rhetoric, terms right, of like rhetoric, it's yeah. how we speak about these things determines where public opinion is going to be on them. Yeah. And right? the, the other thing I would say is you can be in favor of law and order and say the laws can change, should change, can be adjusted, mm -hmm. right? Like I can still be a fan of law and order and at the same time say, you know what? These laws aren't quite fair, equitable, just, whatever word you want to use. Like we mm -hmm. could be, the two things can be true at the same yeah. time. No, no. And I'm a, a dictionary definition of the word, right? Yeah. Like, of mm -hmm. course, we're all for law and order. Right. And like mm -hmm. the TV yeah. show too. <laughs> but, but, um, you've but, been watching a lot of TV on your vacation, huh? No, no, I just mean, Law and Order, there have been like a bazillion episodes, man. I don't know <laughs> anybody who takes like, as much vacation yeah. as Nick. Every um, other week, it's, I'm on vacation, I'll get back to you. Can't be with you guys, that's right. Um, <laughs> and, um, the, the, but, but I mean it when it's, there's a particular kind of valence to it when it's used in a certain way, right? Mm. Like, um, so, so let me ask you all a question, uh, just to kind of, uh, bring us home, which is, you think about those various parts of the system, police, courts, prisons, the laws that govern how people move through them. Um, as Christians, what would be sort of on your wish list for things that would sort of give the best witness to reform any one or all of those institutions? Just, you know, things for us to think about. What, what reforms would you want to make? Well, I'd, I'd want to end the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd really want to... Um, have a national conversation about the interaction of school policy with truancy, arrest, mm. resource officers, all those things, which very often um, lead to higher rates of expulsion, mm -hmm. uh, which leads to all this idle time, which often yeah. leads to interactions with police and yeah. arrest and things of that sort. So I'd, I'd actually want to begin a conversation around how we're doing schooling and, yeah. and how we're doing discipline in schools um, as and some adjustments that need to be made there. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'd, I'd want to see is I'd want to see a return of discretion to judges. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So the the sort of mandatory sentencing laws that were also a part of the sure. 80s, 90s conversation uh, took away a lot of discretion mm -hmm. uh, from judges uh, yes. who would be able to look at cases and make some some human determination about what would be an appropriate sentence or response or treatment as it were i'd, I'd want to see that mm. restored to a greater degree um than, than i think is currently the case i'd also want to see some reform uh around prosecutorial um discretion and uh, behavior so the most powerful person yeah. in the criminal justice system in the united states is that prosecutor for sure you know, they yeah. get to decide mm -hmm. what what charges they're going to press, what yeah. what um, what sentences they're going to uh, push for, and so on. And that's a position in our criminal justice system that has like almost zero accountability, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, and so I think much attention needs to be brought to mm-hmm. uh, prosecutors and prosecutorial conduct. I, I'd love to see work happen around that, reform happen around that. Yeah. Okay. yeah, you always ask this question, and when it comes to policy, nitty-gritty, I never have a good idea. I think, broadly speaking, I think we'd all agree with this. I, I want to see an end in the disparities between you know, who we see locked up. Um, I want to see an end in the disparity between you know, rich and poor. Um, so those are, those are my broad, my broad goals. Um, I wonder, you know, is, is broken windows policing the way to go? Mm. Um, do we, do we want to return to a more, I know we, we, we do tend to idealize the past, but there is this image of the policeman who knows the people he's policing, who walks through the neighborhood, who has relationships. Maybe we're looking back on that with rose colored glasses Maybe not, but right. I will say that the idea of broken windows and, and just, you know, the Eric Garner case, it, this guy, as soon as he decided to arrest this guy, police policy is you must arrest him. He, he you had he's resisted. Now you have to go. And then Garner ends up losing his life. Mm-hmm. And so you look at something like that and it's like, why are you bothering this guy for selling loose cigarettes? Like, give the cop. Don't okay, so, don't push right. the cop to be so, like, I need to bust every crime, no matter how minor. Just to just to zoom out and explain, right? Yeah, so broken sorry. windows policing is the theory that by jumping on top of and stopping all the minor crimes, such as broken windows or graffiti, or graffiti that sort of thing, you will stop the major crimes from happening. It's a New York City thing mm-hmm. under under Giuliani Rudy Giuliani. Loved yeah, it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and uh, the criticism of it is uh, that what it leads to is a lot of sort of stops and arrests for very petty offenses and usually disproportionately at people of lesser means and people of color. Yeah. Um, and I think the alternative you're describing is community policing. Community policing. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is where police know the neighborhood. And it's funny. I was just drawing this parallel in my head to like, if you think about like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, counterinsurgency work for like, you know, sort of the folks with the guns involves you don't get it done well unless you actually just know the people mm-hmm. and know the community that that's what helps you spot the real criminals <laughs> go after them right and have a relationship with those who are not the criminal yeah. element yeah it, it also incidentally improves relationships between police and community yeah. yeah so i think there's just a fair amount of research that actually says moving back away from militarizing yeah. police operations and back away from what you're talking about whether it's stop and frisk broken windows all that mm-hmm. away from those things antagonizes less, puts officers, um, less frequently puts officers at risk, uh, and leads to other kinds of good outcomes uh, in that way. So, yeah, the conversations I've had with police officers is, you know, they've, I I don't want to unfairly misrepresent, but what I've, what I understand them to be saying is like, our hands are tied. Like, we are told this Mm -hmm. is our policy we see a crime we have to we have to stop it and if we initiate an arrest there is no turning back we you know we have no choice we have to do it and so you know that you know whether that's right or wrong i don't know police procedure well enough to to comment but it it seems as if giving them more options to say you know what like not today i'm not gonna grab this kid who's 16 for you know stealing a pack of gum and that i think that would be Okay. The police issue is the hardest one. It's one of the, I think, because it involves essentially change management among a large distributed workforce. It involves helping change the ethos of how police approach their jobs. Yep. And it involves doing so while not, well, 
I mean, I guess my point I'd make here is that when we talk about how police relate to their community, um, on the one hand, you'd say, well, gosh, what is happening doesn't seem to be right, mm. right? All the things you've just described. And then on the other hand, I think I'm somewhat sympathetic when you hear people, a person who's just a police officer say, yes. well, gosh, it feels like all police are just under attack and we yes. can do no right. Right? Well, and, and yeah, and I have sympathy for them. I mean, police officers are dealing with people on their at their worst. Yes, on their worst <laughs> for day. sure, for and, sure. And they're seeing things and dealing with things that I can't possibly imagine. So, so what they and, do is is worthwhile and noble. I'm and so the level that. of mm-hmm. skill that's required. Yeah, right. So it's funny. There was a incident, gosh, last year where in or it was two years ago where there was a shooting in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like and uh, and the there was this video captured of how the police approached the gunman and somehow managed to de-escalate the situation yeah. as their approach. I mean, it's very sort of stereotype of Canadians, right? Yeah. But but the amount of care and training and sensitivity you have to have yep. to do that, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, they're just better than us. Like just, that takes skill and work yep. and it, it says something about what you'd have to do to sort of upskill our police officers. That's that's the other thing yeah. I hear a lot from my friends who are officers is like we don't get training. So yeah. why do we why do officers pull their guns so often? Because they can't handle themselves physically. They don't get whatever you know controlling other human beings mm-hmm. training. They don't get social work training. They don't get any of this stuff. And so they're expected to walk into a domestic dispute, de-escalate, know how to counsel the man and the woman, all without violence. That's really hard, and yeah. the training budget, as I understand it, is not up to the task. So, so all this to say that like it's such an important thing, and it's and it's hard to get right. Um, and in some cases, the easier solution is let's just be like a military occupying this town. Um, and sometimes there are some bad actors who actually positively prefer that. But to your point, Ben, I think there's a probably a silent middle that says, well, we'll we'll kind of go with wherever the trend or the policy or whatever tells us to go or forces us to go. Um, and so that's literally, and the other thing is that's a community by community thing, mm-hmm. right? Thousands of different police forces all over the country. It's not something you just snap yeah. your fingers and change. Yeah. Um, so I, I would just wanted to zoom out. I wasn't necessarily asking about nitty gritty of policy. What I, I, I wanna go back to what I was yeah. saying about, I, I think the purpose of criminal justice, I'd say at the level of policing, it's, it is about safety, but it's also about sort of relationships and creating safety because of the relationships police have and that change management task. I think that when it comes to the courts, it's about seeing justice done, right? That sometimes means declaring people guilty and it sometimes means declaring people innocent and getting better at doing that, mm. right? And create all the mechanisms you descri- describe so that the signal sent to the outside world is, um, here is a place where um, you know, wrong will be punished and the innocent will be, in fact, we, we'll find out the truth, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll do so in a speedy and expeditious way that doesn't cost a ton of money. And then I think once a person is in the system, if they do end up incarcerated, the purpose is twofold, right? There is a balance of penalty and kind of rehabilitation and restoration. And I would, I would go radical on this score, right? Like, you know, it's funny. You think about what happens inside prisons, most prisons, mm the sorts of societies and cultures that rise up and how it's sort of criminal enterprise just in another context, essentially, and how that essentially disciples you in something very different, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so there's, I mean, gosh, I once I once read an article, you know, it was, like, it was like in The Economist, it was years ago, they said, well, you could just put everyone under house arrest and give them ankle bracelets. That we Like, we have the technology to incarcerate without prisons, mm. 
right? We have the technology to deprive you of freedom while not having some of those other terrible things happen to you, mm -hmm. right? Like, could we be radical in thinking about what it means to be deprived of liberty and punished appropriately, um, but without sort of opening us up to some of these terrible things that happen in the modern prison? Nick, I, it's, I'm sitting here struck by that illustration of um, sort of more universalizing uh, house arrest mm -hmm. as an example of, of approaching incarceration. I, I don't know why it's never occurred to me, mm -hmm. right? But but what it what it strike me strikes me as illustrating is what well, you hear some advocates saying. You know, we don't need to be tough on crime; we need to be smart on crime, mm -hmm. right? And I do think that we have largely had a system that hasn't worked hard to be smart. Mm. It's just worked hard to be brute, to mm. be strong, to be mm -hmm. rough. Um, and I don't know that we should think of that as radical. I think we should mm. think of that as rational. Um, in a humane way, a more humane way of, of dealing with um, dealing with crime and dealing with, in some cases, quite inhumane situations. It won't yep. work for every yep. for everything, uh, but for a great number yeah. of things, I think it'd be hugely helpful. Because because there is something a little absurd about the idea of the best thing we've thought of to do with all of our most guilty people who are criminals is to put them, put together. them all, all together. together. <laughs> like that's the best idea we've had. Oh and, my goodness. And oh, by the way, house arrest is going to be a lot cheaper. Yeah, that's what I was yep. going to say. Cause to mm -hmm. incarcerate them that way would cost more than to send them to four year colleges. Totally. You yeah. know, uh, I have one last question. Maybe we, maybe we can end on this. I'll defer to Nick. Um, so what would you like to see Christians doing as it relates to maybe prisons? I mean, you know, the lay Christian doesn't necessarily, I mean, there's lawyers mm. among us, but doesn't necessarily have access to the courthouse. Some of us are police officers. Um, mm. But one area where the church, to some degree, has been somewhat effective is is loving on prison populations. Is sure. there a role for the church to play there? Oh, absolutely. What would you like to see more of? Well, so outside the realm of public action to influence public policy, yes. right? Things yeah. like prison ministries, yeah. absolutely, yeah. right? Um, of course, that, assuming there are still prisons. Uh, of course, you yeah. can just visit the you people with their house, house arrest. That's right. Mm -hmm. So the idea of ministering to those who are incarcerated criminals, I mean, it's it's what it's literally what Jesus, that's not what Jesus would have done. It's what Jesus did do, right? And so that, to me, is like a no-brainer. The only other thing I'd say there, uh, uh, Ben, is that I would... I would, I would, um, I think the greatest contribution the church and or Christians can make to the public conversation is to be staunch in talking about restoration, reconciliation, rehabilitation, right? Like right now, like restorative justice is like a wokey woke term of the left. <laughs> why is that? Right. Right. Like wh why, why is it not something that sort of conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians are like pounding the table for every day when we talk about the purpose of incarceration. That would be my challenge to the sort of Christians and the church everywhere. Amen. Um, be a preacher for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, Christians and churches should take um, postures and actions with regard to advocacy, um, assistance, acceptance, and adoption. Uh, we should advocate for better policy than we have and better programs and practices than we have. So some Christians need to be involved in, 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 that, in that kind of advocacy. 
many more Christians need to be involved in assisting parents and children who have come into contact with the criminal justice system. So you think of um, prison fellowships, angel tree program, and other kinds of things there. Where I think churches really need to grow is in the acceptance of persons who are returning from um, incarceration back into the back into the community and into the church. Right? Uh, we've 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 got these folks mm. both in our policy in terms of the number yeah. of laws they still have to deal with that take away freedoms, but also in terms of our cultures and our churches, mm. we've got these folks still bearing the burden of their incarceration. So we got to work on acceptance, uh, and in some cases, we just need to adopt some families and some children mm. who, who've been orphaned by mm. criminal justice systems and things of that sort. Mm. And so those are, those will be the four things I would exhort. That's good. Amen. Were you saving those four A's for? No, I just, when you ask, your, when you ask this question, just, I'm sitting there thinking about it. He just comes up with this stuff. Uh, listen, preachers please. Preachers do that stuff. That's what preachers do. I like it. The four A's. Alliteration guys, like this. Yeah, but right. Alliteration is the fifth A. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, with that, I think that's a good note to end on. Pastor T, you want to pray us out? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who freed us from our bondage to sin and freed us from that eternal incarceration in hell. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to use our freedom not for our own selfish ends, but to, in love, serve others. And so we pray that your people would go as free people into a world dealing with both the bondage of sin and, and dealing with um, criminal justice systems that are imperfect and um, that we would indeed be advocates for what is just in your sight, that we would indeed be people of mercy who assist those who are hurting um, in their interaction with this system, that we would have love enough to adopt others as you have adopted us in Christ, um, and that we would be accepting, having been accepted by you in Christ. Lord, we pray that our lives would be marked by uh, a wide-hearted, open acceptance of others who need to know the freedom of the gospel. Uh, so help us as your people, O oh Lord, to bear faithful witness uh, in these matters. Help us to get up to speed on the issues and uh, help us to be uh, rational, articulate voices uh, for the vision that you give us from the scripture uh, on how to care for those, all those who are impacted by crime uh, and by our criminal justice system. Do this for your glory and for the progress of your people and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?